Welcome to My Favorite Theorem, the math podcast with no quiz at the end. I'm your host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. I almost forgot my name there for a second. I know I realized I was, like I was hesitating and I was like, who am I again? It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, so our listeners don't know, but it's, it's 530 where I am, which, you know, doesn't sound late, but I've been like at work all day and now I'm tired. And I, yeah. Know, and, and I'm, well, I'm, you should have made up something, you know, just tried on a different name for fun just to see. Well, yeah. So, you know, my parents had the deal that if I was a boy, my dad got to name me. So he went with Kevin Patrick. And if I was a girl, my mother was going to get to name me. And um, should I tell you what I would have been? Yeah. <laughs> Candy K. Knudsen. Now, I'll let you Yikes. work out why that would have been terrible for lots of reasons. <laughs> All right. There are multiple axes along which that is terrible. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, well, my my name, if I had been a boy, ended up with my younger brother. So okay. right. it was kind of not that interesting. I mean, if you knew my family, you would be like, oh, OK, well, that's boring. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we are very happy today to have Priyam Patel on the show. So yeah, Priyam, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, so my name is Priyam. I am an assistant professor at the University of Utah, and I have been here for three years. Before that, I was around everywhere, <laughs> it feels like, for my postdocs. I was at UCSB for a few years, before that at Purdue for a few years. And I did my PhD at Rutgers, so which now feels like ages ago. But yeah, so you've been in like every region of the country, though I guess not Central Time Zone because Indiana right. is right, right on the west edge of Eastern. That's right. Yeah, so I was never in the east in the Central Time Zone, and well, that's why this in the summers in Indiana, the sun sets at like ten thirty p.m. It's really yeah. bizarre. Well, you could call that Central Daylight if you wanted to, right? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Yeah. And as you mentioned, you've been at Utah for about three years um, and you you first got here in fall 2019 and I was gone for most of fall 2019. And then, of course, we all know what happened in 2020. So part of the reason I wanted to invite you is because I feel like I should know you better because you've lived here for three <laughs> years. But like yeah. with the weirdness of the past three years, I feel like I haven't gotten to talk with you that much. And so, of course, obviously the best way to do this is like on a podcast that we want to just broadcast to the entire world. Yeah, um, perfect. So No yeah. private conversation over drinks. Just put me on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. So, so yes, I'm, I'm excited to, to get to chat with you. And yeah, hopefully we can do this over drinks in like a real venue at some point. Wait a minute. Yeah, eventually. What happened in 2020? <laughs> I, I can't. I've tried to block it out. So nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. For some like parts of it, really nothing. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. It feels yeah. like a whole blur since then. So uh, I'm not convinced yeah. it isn't still 2020 somehow. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Anyway, yes. I, I'm being weird today, and I apologize. So let, let's let's get to math. Uh, so so Priyam, you have a favorite theorem. Which is it? Yeah, so I chose the Brouwer fixed point theorem, which yes. I learned has been done twice already on this podcast. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited to hear more about it because in our emails, you mentioned some aspects of it that I wasn't aware of. And yeah. so this is very exciting. And this is why when people, when we email with people, we're, they're always like, well, has this been used? And we're like, 
it doesn't matter if it has, you can use it anyway. <laughs> yeah, we like to talk yeah. about theorems because it, it is interesting just the different relationships people have with the same math. Mm-hmm. So totally. for, for anyone who hasn't been, you know, avidly listening and taking notes on every single episode we've done <laughs> since 2017, can you tell us what the Brouwer fixed point theorem is? Yeah, so I'm just going to state it for the closed disk because that's the only context that I'm going to talk about it in. But basically, if you take in the plane, in R2, if you take the closed unit disk, then the theorem says that every continuous map from the disk to itself necessarily has a fixed point. Mm. So um, should I go into detail about what a continuous map is? Would that help? Yeah, or or at least intuitively. Yeah. Okay, sure. So I actually like, uh, did listen to a lot of the previous podcasts, when <laughs> podcast, podcast episodes while I was preparing. And I like this idea of if you take like the unit disc and you like kind of shake it around a little bit and everything kind of moves in a like a nice smooth fashion where, you know, things don't get sent like uh, really far away. So if in a little neighborhood you're wiggling, one point's not just going to pop out and end up somewhere else, right? I like mm-hmm. that idea of continuity. So if you're wiggling around the disc, the unit disk, and you use any continuous map, somehow one of the points has to stay fixed. So it gets sent to itself. And that's kind of surprising. It feels like if you just like move things around enough, something, everything should get moved off of itself. But in fact, that can't happen. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of my interpretation of Brouwer's fixed point theorem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, you, I guess I always imagine it like made of rubber or something because you are allowed to like stretch and smush a little bit. It doesn't, because otherwise, you know, you might think, oh, the only thing you can do is rotate it. So of course that central point will be fixed, but you can do a lot of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Some different point, but. Yeah, yeah. so it, I think Evelyn has a great point. Like you can spread things out, like you're making it out of like stretchy fabric or material. You can spread things out in one part of the circle in the unit disc and then, you know, string things together in another part. And that's okay. It's like, you know, just kind of smoothly moving around is the way I think about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Right. Right. yeah. But, but something stays put. Something stays put, which is kind of strange sometimes, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's like so many proofs of this theorem, I feel like, and so many mm. different perspectives for proving it. But I do have a favorite proof of it, actually. Okay, good. Let's hear it. So it's unfair because it uses some algebraic topology. So you need to like mm-hmm. to be able to get to this point in this in, in your in your math life where you're like, yeah, this is the proof I like the best. You have to learn some algebraic topology. But essentially, the idea is that when you're in topology, in the field of topology, um, you're trying to understand when two objects that are made out of bendy, squishable material that you can stretch and shrink, um, when two of those are really the same. So if you have, let's say, a circle or a really oblong wiggly circle, those two are the same. It doesn't really matter if one is really beautiful and perfectly symmetric. It's really the same space in, in topology. So two things that are not the same topologically are the closed unit disk and mm-hmm. just the outer boundary, which is just a circle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's an, a thing called an algebraic invariant that you can compute called the fundamental group that tells you that topologically, formally, these two spaces really aren't the same. And essentially, there's a proof that says if there wasn't a fixed point, then you could basically take the entire closed unit disk and shrink everything, every every point in the disk to the boundary. Mm-hmm. This is called a retract. You're basically saying like, I'm going to retract the entire closed unit disk to just the circle. And retracts are supposed to give you 
the same fundamental group. And you already know that those two things aren't the same. Mm -hmm. And so that's like my favorite version of this proof. And I can slow down on any part of that if you'd like more details. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, I think maybe a good way to see this is like, you know, that example of, of turning the circle around, you know, like a record spitting on a, a record player or something. Yeah. Like if you took away that central point, everything else can move. Mm -hmm. And you can also imagine pulling that rubber all the way to the edge, you yeah. know, making it into a bike tire or you yeah. know, something else right. like that, but, mm -hmm. which yeah, actually you, is topologically different. Right. But it, as soon as you puncture it, I think that's a great point. So Evelyn's basically saying, let's just take out the center point, the, mm -hmm. what corresponds to the origin in R2. Well, actually, once you do that, there's no contradiction that you derive, right? Like you can have every point moving. And in fact, that punctured disc and the circle are the same topologically. That yeah. that retract that you can use to just pull everything to the boundary shows you actually that they're the same topologically. Mm -hmm. So it's just like that one, how, it's amazing how much like one point can make such a huge difference, right? Yeah. Adding yeah. in that one point, but yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. my favorite proof actually. It's fancy in some ways, but once you know the basic material that leads up to it, it's like a three line proof, right? Which is kind of yeah. incredible. Mm -hmm. But it's maybe a little bit like use, what is the phrase, like using a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito? Cause like, oh yeah. Okay, yeah. if you <laughs> built up all of this fundamental group, then sure, you could just whack that. And <laughs> Yeah. And it's so funny because in math, typically I am the opposite of a hammer striker, right? I never mm -hmm. use the hammer. I want to understand the nitty gritty of why you can just explain this using elementary math or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when I saw this proof in like Hatcher's algebraic topology book, I was like, oh my gosh, that just like makes perfect sense to me. Like I totally get why now. Right. So it definitely is one of those hey, use a hammer, use a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. type of approaches. But I'm, a, I'm actually teaching algebraic topology this year. And, um, and so I, that is the proof I use for, for the, the Brower fixed point theorem. Yeah. Um, but I use a sledgehammer to prove that, um, every polynomial of, of odd degree with real coefficients has a, has a root. And I use mm -hmm. the, I use the left, the left shift's fixed point theorem to do it. You know, yeah, like, not, not just the intermediate enough, value would... theorem or something, just, you know, let's, right, let's, right. Let, let's use the biggest <laughs> sledgehammer we can find. Yeah, It's awesome. I mean, yeah. honestly, if you uh, want for this podcast, if you want to talk about a fun theorem, that's called theorem at the end, right? Not just some result, but that's actually named a lot of the ones you come up with in topology are the fixed point theorems. Right. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this one's actually my favorite. And there's a reason for it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 that makes sense. Okay, so, so, so what, the, yeah, yeah what reason? else do you love about this theorem? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this actually was inspired from talking to a few grad students the other day, but I realized that, um, you know, I gave them the task, which says, can you classify all of the isometries of hyperbolic two space? Now, that's already a fancy sentence to say, mm -hmm. so I can break down all of what that means. But in fact, one of the key ingredients for the approach that is my favorite to solving that problem is to use the Brouwer fixed point theorem. Mm. So I can start off by talking about um, sort of what hyperbolic space is and like what metric spaces are. Mm -hmm. And from there, I can explain what an isometry is. Um, it's kind of similar to a continuous map, but it has a lot more structure and preserves a lot more structure. So let's start off with just hyperbolic space, shall we? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the way I think about anything that is a non-Euclidean geometry, which hyperbolic geometry is one of those, um, I have to start thinking about, well, Euclidean geometry first, right? And Euclidean geometry, when I think of that, I think axioms, right? There's Euclid's axioms and they're written down. You don't need to know what they are. But the last one is the one that people started saying 
let's try to break it and see what happens to these models of geometry that we're sort of studying, right? Like, could we come up with a different interpretation than just Euclidean space? And so if you break the parallel postulate, um, there's a few different types of geometries you can get that satisfy all the other ones, but they don't satisfy the parallel postulate. And hyperbolic geometry is one of them. So what is a geometry, right? It's a space, like we just talked about, let's say the closed unit disk. And to me, geometry, you're studying rigid things like distances, angles. And so you wanna have a notion of measuring distance on whatever space you choose. So since we're gonna talk about the Brouwer fixed point theorem, of course, my space is gonna be the closed unit disk. In fact, I'll just start off with the open unit disk for now. So let's just get rid of the boundary, right? So if I start off with the open unit disk, that is my space. And there is a way of measuring distance on that space. So you can say, oh, put in these two points. I want to know the distance between them. Um, there's a way of measuring distance on it where if you want to go from the center point at the origin out to one of the boundary points, let's say just one zero one or one zero right in the plane, it actually takes you an infinite amount of distance to get there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in hyperbolic space, this model of hyperbolic space, which is called the Poincaré disk model, um, <clears throat> the boundary of the disk is sort of off at infinity. Okay, mm -hmm. and as you get close to that sort of boundary at infinity, points are getting really, really, really far away. That's what it means to get you know closer and closer to infinity. Is distances go really big, and so that's the idea of what the Poincaré disk model of hyperbolic two space is. And of course, if it weren't a podcast, I'd be showing like tons of pictures right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is <laughs> quite attractive. It's yes, a, it just is. a lovely really uh, appealing model. Yeah, and like you can look up um, all these amazing pictures by Escher, right? Mm -hmm. Where um, this is these famous paintings where Escher you know, uses the upper half plane model or the disk model and shows how like a bat or whatever the figure that it is that he uses to tessellate, a bat of the same area drawn in different parts of the hyperbolic plane can look to our eyes very different, right? And that's again, coming back to this notion of as you move out towards the boundary of the unit disc, distances are getting really big. So the bat would have to look really small to your eye to, to have the same area mm -hmm. as a bat in the center of the disc, right? So I highly encourage listeners to Google just hyperbolic space or Escher's hyperbolic paintings, right? And you'll come up with so many things. <laughs> yeah. Well, fun fact is that my Twitter profile picture um, is a tiling of the hyperbolic plane with the Poincaré disc with like a picture of me in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love it. I love yeah. it. I know Evelyn really loves all of these like hyperbolic geometry topology type things. So yeah, that's also partly why I chose this topic. <laughs> yes, you're definitely speaking my language. <laughs> yeah. So Okay, so this is, you know, that's the idea of what hyperbolic space is. There's so many more things you need to do to sort of gain the intu intuition of what it feels like to live in hyperbolic space, right? And those are the kind of things that you build over years of studying it in your life. But the, the real thing I wanna talk about is isometries of the hyperbolic disk model, right? So what is an isometry? It's a map of the of the space to itself. So kind of like that jiggling that we were talking about, mm -hmm. but where all of the distances between any two pairs of points remain the same. So mm -hmm. a great example that Evelyn already talked about was this rotation around the origin, right? If you rotate around the center point, 
all of the points, pick any two of them, they actually say the same distance apart. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy thing to see, partly because I never told you how to measure distances, right? Mm -hmm. That completely relies on how we decided to define that, which is the metric on the space, that notion of measuring distances. But if you knew it and you wrote it down explicitly, you could actually calculate that that rotation is distance preserving in the, the Poincaré disk model of hyperbolic space. So that's the idea of what an isometry is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we wanna try to get uh, fancy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And usually what you do when you have a space is you say, I'm gonna try to understand all the isometries of this space. So where does this notion come from? In topology, if we're not talking about geometric structure and we just kind of care about a space and it's all blobby and can be stretched and shrunken, we think about all of the symmetries, right? Those all the topological symmetries of the space. When we're talking about isometries, what we're actually talking about is geometric symmetries of the mm -hmm. space, okay? All different ways of moving around this space where like distance hasn't really changed. So you're preserving the geometric structure. Mm -hmm. It turns out that if you take all of the isometries, you end up with a group. It has a really nice structure. You can compose two of them, but that's not really even important for today. What you really care about always is, can I classify all things of this type? Right. And there are infinitely many of them. It's really hard to classify things when there's a whole infinite set. Right. I'm not just putting <laughs> things in bins, yeah. like these are red marbles and these are blue mm -hmm. ones and these are green ones, right? So amazingly, it actually turns out that isometries of H2, the hyperbolic plane or disk model, only fall into three flavors. They're either elliptic, which are very similar to the rotations that we talked about, or they are the rotations, basically. Mm -hmm. There are parabolics, and there are loxodromics, or sometimes called hyperbolics, which doesn't make sense because it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're talking about hyperbolic space, calling something a hyperbolic isometry when you mean a certain type is confusing. So I'll just call it loxodromic, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a few things you need to know, like what could the isometries even look like, right? How could I possibly get <clears throat> equations of these isometries? So you have to work a little bit, but it turns out that you can write down a general formula for a generic isometry of the Poincaré disk model or the upper half plane model of oh. hyperbolic space. So just as an example, I'm gonna switch models. And in fact, when I say I'm gonna switch a model of hyperbolic space, what I mean is, I'm just going to go to a different space with another metric on it, but it ends up being the same geometrically, mm -hmm. right? There is a nice map between the two of them where all the geometry is preserved. So I like sometimes the upper half plane model because it's really easy to like write down what the isometries are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what I'll say is, and I, again, I'd write this down on the board if I could, <laughs> <laughs> but imagine it, close your eyes and imagine it. Um, I'll take four real numbers, A, B, C, and D. And all I saw, all really orientation preserving, but let's sweep that under the rug. Mm -hmm. All orientation preserving isometries of the uh, upper half plane model look like AZ plus B over divided by CZ plus D, where Z is a complex number. Mm -hmm. Okay. The criteria you need to make sure you satisfy is that uh, AD minus BC is one. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's another interpretation actually in terms of matrices, put those four things into a matrix, A, B, C, D. Well, you're saying I want A, D minus B, C, D, B equal to one, that's mm -hmm. SL2R. Mm -hmm. If you multiply the top and the bottom by negative one, it 
in the top and the bottom, you're not changing the transformation. So you have to mod out by plus or minus the identity. Yep. So we're really looking at PSL2R, right? right? Projectivized special linear space. Yeah. So, and I, I actually, I do love that because the first time you see these hyperbolic isometries with the AZ plus B over CZ plus D, and then they're like, oh yeah, AD minus BC. You, you just have this almost spidey sense tingling of like, oh, yeah. okay, that's like <laughs> a determinant. Why are we doing this? There must be some relationship here with linear algebra. Right. Yeah, and your spidey sense is like totally on point, right? So <laughs> I love I love actually that connection. And I sort of, you know, I always wonder how much detail to go into with these things since I'm not writing at the board, but I love that, right? Because anybody listening to the podcast should be like, okay, wait, that's a determinant, just like you yeah. did, right? So yeah, so there's a little bit of, you know, complex analysis that goes into sort of deriving the fact that these are actually isometries, that they map the hyperbolic plane to itself and so on. But once you have a nice general formula, you start to use Brouwer's fixed point theorem. Mm. So I, this is part of my life. I go back and forth between the models all the time. So I'm sorry if this is getting annoying, but I'm going to go back to the disk model for a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And well, okay. Let's think for a second. Right now, what I have is the open disk and I have a boundary at infinity. And often when you're working with spaces, you can sort of complete up the space by adding in the boundary. Okay, this is the, the sort of completion of hyperbolic, the Poincaré disk model of hyperbolic space. So now if I take the hyperbolic disk model with its boundary, I have the closed unit disk, mm -hmm. right? An isometry is way better than a continuous map, but in particular, it is continuous. And so Brouwer's fixed point theorem says, no matter what map I'm talking about from the disk to itself, the closed disk to itself, I have a fixed point. Right. So if you have a formula, and you know there has to be a fixed point, you should try to solve for those fixed points, mm -hmm. right? Right. And so I'm going to pop back to the hyperbolic plane model because <laughs> that's where we have our nice formula. So I'm just going to try to solve AZ plus B over CZ plus D equals Z, mm -hmm. right? This is a function, your input is Z, even though it seems weird because you're like, wait, I'm multiplying by A, then adding B, dividing by, this is like really complicated, mm -hmm. right? But there are certain points for which you put it in and depending on A, B, C, and D, you spit out the same number, right? The same right. complex number. So this is what I tell people to do. This is what my students did the other day. They said, oh, well, what am I, how am I supposed to approach this? And that's the classic proof. You use the Brouwer fixed point theorem and you start to solve for AZ plus B over CZ plus D equals Z. The key point that you use after you're doing all the algebraic manipulations is that AD minus BC is always one. Mm -hmm. So a ton of stuff cancels out as you're solving, right? Mm -hmm. and it becomes like a very nice equation. But what am I doing actually? If I cross multiply, right? Multiply by CZ plus D on both sides and then move everything over to one side, I'm getting a degree two polynomial in the Z coordinate. Mm -hmm. How do you solve any degree two polynomial? You use the quadratic equation. Mm -hmm. So the, the bane of some people's existence when they're going through <laughs> like school and high school, they're like, I'll never use this. Well, first, if you become a mathematician, you're definitely going to use it. Yes. But <laughs> this is like, I love when like things that you learn when you're so mathematically young still come into play mm -hmm. when you're doing mm -hmm. like really sophisticated math. I think mm -hmm. that's really cool. Yeah. So, okay. We write down the formula and basically what it comes down to is what's underneath the square root, right? What is the discriminant? Mm -hmm. Because when you take the square root of a negative number, you get imaginary things, right? Imaginary numbers, complex numbers with um, non-trivial mm -hmm. imaginary part. 
if the thing under the under the square root is zero, well, you're just getting one root, right? Mm -hmm. And then if the thing under the square root is not zero, but it's positive, you're just getting two real roots. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's think about that. We have three categories, one real root, two complex roots, or two real roots, mm -hmm. right? right? The thing is that um, in the upper half plane model, the thing I never talked about was that you need the imaginary part to be positive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the actual categories are, one real fixed point, mm -hmm. one complex fixed point in the hyperbolic plane, or two real fixed points, mm -hmm. okay? Really, the when you're going between the models, what ends up happening is in the upper half plane model, the boundary at infinity is the real number line. It's the x-axis in the mm -hmm. complex plane. Mm -hmm. So that ends up being the boundary of the circle, the unit disk. So we're talking about three cases, one fixed point on the boundary, two fixed points on the boundary or one fixed point on the interior, which is mm -hmm. the complex one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's it. That's literally the classification, because if you have anything more than three fixed points, you can show that your transformation was the do nothing transformation. It's the identity. Yeah. Right. So it's not just that the Brouwer fixed point theorem tells you, right, that you can find fixed points that there is one, you can actually classify all of the isometries based on these three categories, which I think is like just incredible. And if you want, I can give you a little bit of a geometric interpretation of what the three isometries, the classes of isometries are too. Sure. Yeah. But I would like to pause and say one of the last classes I taught when I was at the University of Utah was an undergraduate like introduction to topology class. So we, we touched on some of this a little bit and it's like, I kind of want to go back and teach it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. use this for, for I mean, that part it, of it. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I have, um, you know, even though it has some sophisticated things going on, you can tell, you know, some advanced undergrad students about this stuff and really show them a lot of beautiful pictures. So when I was in Santa Barbara, I did teach um, a non-Euclidean geometry class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, I have to do all the other geometries justice as well. <laughs> I wish I could have just taught it as a high school. Really? I know, right? Yeah. I know, I know. Um, but so yeah, if sure. I could teach it as... I know. I mean, I uh, when you get to hyperbolic geometry, though, it's kind of like it's limitless, right? The amount of stuff you can kind of tell mm -hmm. and teach students. So I do love that aspect of it, that it's not um, it's not such an advanced sort of theorem that you're just like, what is this using? Where does it come from? It's like you need to know the Brouwer fixed point theorem. You need to know the basics of the model of hyperbolic geometry you're mm -hmm. thinking about. And that's basically it. Right. Yeah. OK, so. Um, Let's talk about the three sort of classic, um, I guess I would say the canonical examples that people give for each of the three categories. So for anybody who's listening that's uh, really into math and that knows a little bit about algebra, every isometry is actually conjugate to one of these, but mm -hmm. they're like the model. They're sort of like the best behaved one in each category. What do they look like? Okay, so for the elliptic ones, we're gonna start there because Evelyn's already told us what they look like, right? In the disk model, they're all just rotations about the origin, mm -hmm. right? Technically, the fixed point could be anywhere, and it's still kind of a rotation around that fixed point. Mm -hmm. But again, up to this conjugation, you can move that fixed point to the origin. And then so now you're really just asking, if I want to just understand the canonical form of this, I just am going to try to understand isometries of the disk that fix, um, that fix the origin, and I'm going to get that these are rotations, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually go through and derive the formulas. You know, you you say, I solved for the real root. Oh, sorry, I solved for the root. It's complex. Here it is. 
let me write down what this might mean. And you can really see which Mobius transformations you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But that's the canonical way that we think about elliptic ones. And I think the elliptic word has to do with that like sort of rotation, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. okay, but don't quote me on that because ooh, I'm not good at words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at the math and pictures, but not great at words. Okay, so um, let's go to something more interesting. So what are the parabolic ones? Okay, these are the ones where you have one fixed point on the boundary. And I'm gonna go ahead and use the upper half plane model again, because I think it's a little bit prettier to see the parabolic ones there. So I didn't really say what the upper half plane model was, so let me go ahead and do that. So the upper half plane model of hyperbolic space is you take the entire plane, but then you only think about the upper half part, right? So where the Y coordinate is strictly greater than zero. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the disk model, when we approached the boundary, distances got really big, right? Mm -hmm. What is the boundary for the upper half plane model? It's the real axis in the complex plane, so the X axis, and the point all the way out in infinity in the plane itself, right? So in R2, there's actually a, an infinity, right? The one point at infinity, that has to get thrown in there. Okay, so what we can do is say, Let's um, let's have fun and say that the fixed point in the hyperbolic plane model is infinity, right? Sure. So I'm going to take a straight line. It goes from zero, the origin, right? Zero, zero in the real in the uh, complex plane, and it's just going to go straight up to infinity. Okay. If infinity is fixed, right? And you have to map these sort of straight lines to straight lines. Mm -hmm. What you can come up with, and I mean, I'm, I'm waving my hands here. You have to actually do some like algebra and manipulate everything and sort of like make sure you're reducing this the right way. But what it turns out to say is that um, these are all translations, right? So the maps AZ plus B over CZ plus D, well, C is zero, mm -hmm. D is one, and it's really just Z plus B or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's like a translation by some by some number. That's approximately what a parabolic transformation looks like. So you just translation is something we understand from Euclidean geometry, right? It's just that the way that it affects points in so what do I want to say? Translation in the Euclidean plane, we understand and that's with that metric. We have like the upper half plane with a different metric. It turns out in this case that translation is still an isometry, but you have to remember like distances look different, right? So when you're going to see parabolics in the disc model, things get a little bit more complicated. You have to talk about things called horocycles, H-O-R-O mm -hmm. -O cycles. And that I would say it's better to just look up <laughs> because yeah. this is where a picture would be very, very useful, right? Right. Okay, and now, the the queen of them all is the loxodromic isometries mm -hmm. okay so this is where we start to see a lot of the connections from between hyperbolic geometry and dynamics mm -hmm. so when you have a loxodromic isometry of two fixed points on the boundary with a little bit of work again what you can see is that if you take those two fixed points on the boundary there's actually a uh, sort of like a shortest line segment going from one to the other Okay, lines look different in hyperbolic space because the metric is different, right? But essentially the way that this isometry acts on the disk model is that one, one of those fixed points acts as a source, the other one acts as a sink. And everything in the disk model 
is getting taken away from the source and being pulled towards the sink. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is called, and, and actually along the axis, that geodesic axis that you have between the two fixed points, it's acting as translation along that. So this is a phenomenon in dynamics more generally called north-south dynamics, right? You have this source and a sink and things are moving from the source to the sink in a north-south sort of way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's my favorite one. Of course, it's like the most complicated one. It's the yeah. one that comes up the most when you're studying surfaces, right? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that that sort of is my, I don't know, that's just my favorite. That's my favorite type of isometry. I, I think it makes sense when you're working in hyperbolic geometry because it comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, this that's so fun. So another thing we like to do on the podcast is force our guests <laughs> to pair their theorem with something force. in the real yeah. world. Uh, so you know what have you chosen for your pairing today? I invite yeah, so I chose... our guests to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't think about this one so hard because I have a natural pairing in my life, which is climbing, mm. right? So okay. I... I love to climb. So mm -hmm. I got into rock climbing when I was a postdoc in Santa Barbara. Um, in fact, one of my most favorite. Yeah, it mm -hmm. is a good place for climbing. And it just so happened that my mathematical grandfather, Mike Friedman, actually is in Santa Barbara as well. Mm -hmm. He is a very good rock climber. And he took me on my first like sort of uh, ropes climbing outside adventure. It was a lot more intense than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> but he's an intense guy. So I, I you know, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into, but it was such a um, moment of growth for me. And there are a lot of mathematicians that are attracted to climbing mm -hmm. and there's a reason, right? It's problem solving, but mm -hmm. like with the physical component put in there, right? So um, when I'm not problem solving in my office or at my home office, I'm usually in the gym, <laughs> problem solving, climbing problems with my friends. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, and that's, I have, I have like done one little rock climbing thing. I, I've never done it, but they actually call them problems, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. bouldering problems. Going up yeah. a route is called a problem, yeah. Mm -hmm. which, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's funny. a very heady, you know, of course, if you ask a mathematician to choose like a physical sport to get into, they're like, oh, climbing. And then I can still use my brain all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what yeah, I actually, yeah, I was going to say, when I was a postdoc, I did it some. There was a climbing gym in Evanston. And, um, yeah. and yeah, you're right. It's very good for your brain. And I always thought that too. But man, my fingers just, mm -hmm. it, it hurt so bad. And I was, a, I was actually mostly a cyclist at the time, which um, was also good because it doesn't require you to really use your brain. Like riding a bike is so automatic that I could go out for a ride and like think about math while I was riding. So I could, I mean, I mean, I know you want to get away from the math sometimes, but it was actually a good thing to do for me. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I actually totally agree. I was really into running for a while and mm. I loved that sort of time to decompress and mm -hmm. add space to your brain. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, with climbing, I don't have that sort of uh, flow. I don't reach flow quite mm -hmm. as quickly as like I do in other exercise, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but uh, it's very good for getting out the work stress. I gotta say, mm -hmm. <laughs> you just like work really, really, really hard physically. And um, it is very rewarding. I think it's the type of thing where just like math, in my opinion, you know, quote unquote, natural ability is not actually the thing I think that determines uh, how well somebody does in math over time. I think it's actually with it has a lot to do with how hard you work, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're in training, taking care of your body, learning things, watching climbers, being like very observant, you tend to pick it up pretty quickly, right? And 
um, there's a lot of big burly guys in the gym who, who struggle and then they're sort of surprised when like petite women get up and <laughs> sort of just crush the problem, which I mean, I don't mind that, you know, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a good lesson for everybody. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I also think, you know, for me, um, climbing and math are both, you know, very dominated by certain um, genders and races. It's very like, it's a very white dominated sport. It's a very white male dominated sport. Mm-hmm. Often like math is right. Math spaces are very dominated in those same ways. And a lot of my work in math has been, you know, to pr- to promote diversity and equity and justice really in my math communities, wherever I exist. And it turns out that that extends to my climbing communities as well, because I co-founded a group called Color the Wasatch, which is an affinity group for people of color climbers in the Wasatch Valley. So it's it's been really great. And I've learned a lot from that. And it's very similar when you have people around you that have similar experiences to you. It can be so enriching and it can be such a relief to just sort of feel yourself relax, right? And mm-hmm. feel just comfortable in your own skin where wherever you might exist. And um, that's a big one that I sort of learned very recently that I, you know, it, I've, I've sort of always been into sort of activism in the math community, but um, this was a real first big thing I did in my community outside of my work as a university professor. And it's incredibly rewarding and it's mm-hmm. been, yeah, it's kind of taken off. It's been great, so. Cool. And um, we also like to give our guests a chance to talk about anything, um, you know, you'd like to plug. And actually, I I think I just saw on Twitter some people tweeting about the Roots of Unity conference that is happening. Is that or I don't know if conference is the right word for it um, happening this summer. And I think this episode will probably be published in time for people who learn about it to apply oh, like so can you next talk about week that? i think next week this will be out. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's great because the okay so the application deadline for the youths of roots of unity workshop is actually february 15th which mm. is great uh, as you said it's uh going to be out in time the podcast will be out in time so the roots of unity workshop i am actually co-organizing with some phenomenal women in math who I really look up to actually. And um, we designed this workshop to sort of support people um, who might not see people that look like them at their home institutions early on in their graduate career. So there's amazing programs out there like EDGE, the EDGE network for um, people going into grad school. There are amazing um, research focused conferences like the Women in Numbers group. We actually have a Women in Geometry groups and Dynamics group now. And we felt that there was a sort of gap in between. Um, And it's very hard, speaking from personal experiences, uh, to be the only woman of color in your sort of department or in your graduate cohort. And so we're we're really aiming to sort of support anybody who would benefit from this kind kind of program, but especially gearing it towards people who don't get that same training or preparation or encouragement at their home institutions, especially women of color. So it's going to be a professional development and research development workshop. And one of the things that we're doing is we're sort of helping grad students learn how to read papers. Cause like, gosh, we just are given papers and said, go read this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a skill to reading a paper. Well, I think. And so that's one of the big things that we're focusing on is that sort of transition between early coursework that feels very much like an extension of undergraduate curriculum and then into this like whole new world that really requires a big pivot mentally right Mm -hmm. of reading papers and coming up with research problems and 
having a good network of support and collaborators as you do that. So that's occurring in June of this year at the IMA. So the program's, you know, in the process, the schedule has been in the process of being set. But yeah, applications are open and we would love to see lots and lots of applications. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Where, where can we find you elsewhere online? So I am on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, whew, what is my handle? Evelyn, do you know what my handle is? <laughs> uh, I, don't know it? It. I think it might be 3M886. Maybe, maybe that might be it. Yes. But, you know, <laughs> y'all can post it if you want on the website eventually. Yeah. Um, my website actually has a link to the Roots of Unity workshop. So that's um, patelp.com. And I also have a little page actually about Color the Wasatch there as well. So if people are interested in the climbing aspect of things also, that's that's all on my website. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, this has yeah. been a lot of fun. Um, I always learn, I always like learning new things about the Brower Fixed Point Theorem. You know, I've taught complex analysis. And so I've thought about, I think I've shown my students sort of how linear fractional transformations, which are these isometries, are yeah. acting on the upper half plane. But I never thought about it in terms of, isometry so this is good the next time yeah. we do it you know so yeah absolutely yeah so those linear fractional transformations are like the, the basic ingredient you need right mm -hmm. once you right. know those you say which ones are actually going to map the upper half plane to itself and then which ones are going to be distance preserving and, and everything falls go. out from there so right. it's Very really cool. nice yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah this has been a lot of fun yeah thanks yeah thanks for listening to my favorite theorem hosted by kevin knutson and evelyn Lamb. the music you're hearing is a piece called fractalia percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik That's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards. And Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.